This morning I want to explore a theme that we've uh, looked at in different ways um, over the years, but that really in a way is at the uh, heart of our practice, and that is the theme of uh, practicing with challenges. In January and February, I specifically focused on what I like to call heart practices and gave a series of talks called Heart Practices in Difficult Times and was particularly focusing then on uh, two practices, forgiveness practice and compassion practice. And I thought to, in a sense, continue the series by talking about other ways that we practice with challenges. And today I want to particularly focus, probably for the first of two times, on practicing with thoughts and emotions, including ones that are challenging. It's right at the center of our practice. It's a way of, uh, or let me say, that being able to practice skillfully with challenges is one of the glories of this practice, one of the great fruits. Um, and it's um, a capacity that we, in a sense, train for in a protected environment like here or at home, and then we gradually bring out the um, capacity to respond skillfully rather than react to whatever comes up, including challenging situations. That's our, that's our practice. So that's what I want to talk about. And I want to talk uh, first, more generally, about working with challenges, and then, more specifically, talk about uh, practicing with thoughts and emotions, including difficult ones. And I'd like to uh, invite you, if you so wish, to particularly focus for the next week on how you work, how you practice with challenging thoughts and emotions, having been given some further guidance. <laughs> Okay, so that's, that's my intention for today. And today and next time and maybe some other times, I'd like to not, um, this is sometimes challenging for me, not to talk too long so that we have a good amount of time to uh, talk together. Because um, it's very likely that all of us have had challenging thoughts and emotions recently. Perhaps even very recently. <laughs> and so there's a lot of material, and we, it's, very, it's very helpful to share, hear different experiences, and look at the basic uh, principles and tools of practice together. Very, very helpful. Sometimes I think about the uh, essence of our practice as very simple. We try to be mindful and aware of what's happening, and then having some sense of what's happening internally and externally, we summon our uh, best intention based on our best wisdom and compassion, and then we act as skillfully as we can. Almost like th three simple pieces, right? We try to be aware of what's happening, we formulate a response, in a sense, an intention to respond to what's happening, and then we uh, act skillfully, or as skillfully as we can. And in a sense, uh, each of those areas are areas of training. We could break those down further. We could break down further the cultivation of mindfulness. How do we really have a sense of what's happening internally and externally? How can we actually be accurate? as to what's going on, rather than get caught, let's say, in habitual interpretations of ourselves or others, which are very common. We use our interpretations all the, all the time to simplify life, right? And they may be old habits, and they may not be very accurate. Um, and so how do we develop mindfulness? How can, we, how can we be accurate? How do we develop wisdom? What are the principles of wisdom? What does wisdom mean? How do we, again, see with clarity the nature of things? Traditionally, in Buddhist tradition, 
Uh, wisdom is especially seeing what the roots are of, of suffering and the roots are of freedom. How do we understand what gets us stuck, why we suffer, and how do we understand what can bring greater freedom? That's really the, at the center of wisdom. And then we have the heart practices like loving kindness and compassion, which in a way um, tenderize us and in a sense permit us really very crucial for actually having us to be able to be balanced with challenging situations, to uh, increasingly be with experience through, through the uh, lens, as it were, or through the uh, through through the uh, filter of compassion. And then how do we work with intention? How do we formulate um, how do we formulate an intention? What, how do we work with bringing our wisdom into action? So that it's not just something that we uh, have on the side. You know, or that we don't have a big gap between what we think is important, what our values are, and how we act. That's a challenge as well, right? How do we, how do we make that connection? How do we become more skillful in action? Whatever our milieu is, wherever we work, how do we become more skillful in speech, in uh, interpersonal relationships, and so forth? So it's about a 10-year curriculum, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe longer. <laughs> you know? But we could, we could look at that simple model of I try to be aware of what's happening, I summon my best wisdom and compassion, formulate an intention, and then I act. Very simple model of, of what is at the core of our practice moment to moment. And we could um, talk about that in terms of being able to respond with some freedom rather than react. That is the heart of our practice. And the uh, understanding traditionally of that is sometimes expressed in teachings like the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's the possibility of freedom, and there's a way of training for freedom. Um, the essence of it for me comes down to, am I able to respond moment to moment to experience, or am I conditioned and pushed and pulled in certain ways so that I'm actually not free, so that I'm reactive because of past habits, past conditioning, the challenges of the situation. And that's really the, the essence of the practice. And we cultivate all those qualities like mindfulness, wisdom, which I think at the core is about being able to respond, being able to move beyond being reactive to situations. And we train by learning the capacities to be mindful, to be wise, in first, usually, not always, first in protected, safe, easier situations. Like, hopefully like here, <laughs> you know. We, and we, so we may have a protected place of meditation where we cultivate mindfulness. Because it's much harder to learn mindfulness when we're in an interpersonal ruckus where there's a lot of reactivity. We have to train to be responsive rather than reactive, especially by training in protected environments. And, you know, and generally in the world, most trainings occur first in simpler, protected, easier environments where we develop certain capacities and then we gradually bring it out into all the situations of our lives. And that's really crucial that we, um, I think we can make a commitment to develop this quality of responsiveness first in easier situations, in more protected situations, and then we make a commitment to bring it out into all the parts of our lives which is harder, generally, not so easy, you know. And we, we may bring that out into our interpersonal relationships, into our work, into challenging situations, into difficult situations. 
There's a um, um, wonderful phrase in Tibetan teachings, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. And there's, there's, a, there's a great Tibetan saying, which I, I, I sometimes like to give here, which says, when the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. <laughs> but when faced with trouble, my faults are exposed. <laughs> right? And so we can see that, and so we keep training in the easier situations. But we have a commitment to go to the challenges. If we only have practice when the sun is shining and my belly is full, it's limited. It's also that this quality of responsiveness is so valuable for the world. You know, the world is filled with reactivity. The conflicts of the world are people who are being reactive with each other, who don't have the capability, typically, to be responsive. And so there's this continual acting out. So those who have trained to be responsive and not be caught by situations, by one's own habits, by one's own mind, have a very important role to play in the world. And I hope we see that. I hope we can know that, that that this is not actually ultimately just about doing better personally. That there is, I think, a great responsibility to bring out this capacity for responsiveness out into the world more. The world deeply needs it. And there are incredible challenges of doing that, right? You want to bring responsiveness to the issue of climate change? There'll be challenges, right? There are challenges. You want to bring it to having more peace in your community? There are challenges, right? But I hope you see that what's needed in the world is exactly what we're training for. And I hope that we can see that we can train again so that these capacities develop and then be willing to take some leaps, to take some jumps, to be willing to say, okay, I want to take on that challenge, even though it's not necessarily, not necessarily very easy. So some of the further principles of this, one of the principles of working with challenges is that we take everything as learning. Rather than divide the, our experience into, oh, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. We do that commonly, don't we? Right? Oh, this is great. Oh, poor me. Right? And so we shift that attitude. We shift the attitude towards taking everything as learning. Again, we don't throw ourselves into situations beyond our capacity. That would not be wise. <clears throat> and there's a very, you know, uh, one of the principles I like to uh, describe as central to all this is um, knowing what the degree of difficulty is of your challenging situation. Thinking of, um, you know, like divers who have degrees of difficulty zero to ten. And they have to practice to get to degree of difficulty eight or nine or ten, right? And it's very, very helpful to know this challenging situation, what degree of difficulty is it? And to know that the nines and tens take tremendous capacity. And to think that I can train with the fives. I have a challenging person at work, not the most difficult situation. Okay, my training situation, wonderful. Right? Here we are, let's go. So there, um, so that's a, key, that's a key principle. We train with the easier and move towards the, the more difficult. Um, another very crucial principle for um, uh, taking everything as learning and having a sense of responsiveness at the center of things is that the learning that we do internally with our own minds works with the same principles as what we find interpersonally or in the world. That 
the principles of what leads to reactivity in the mind can be seen to be very similar when we look interpersonally or in the world. So, in other words, uh, I can see that um, something may not go well with me and I may judge myself for that. We would call that being reactive in a certain way. I judge myself, something didn't go well, I judge myself, I get down on myself. And when we work with that, we can see that what we're working with is the very principle of noticing reactivity, seeing how it works. In this case, reactivity means reacting negatively towards myself for something that happened. I could equally well have something occur interpersonally and I react and judge the other person or judge myself or use language in a way that's, that's acting out or reactive or I get angry or we, all, we know that. So part of uh, this practice is actually noticing that the, the issue really in our own minds, interpersonally, in a community, in, in the world, is actually always going, the, the key issue is going to be reactivity. There's a tremendous simplification of this and that's often expressed in this teaching, which I think is the quickest expression of the Buddha's teaching. Because I think the Buddha is basically teaching the possibility of living with responsiveness rather than reactivity in every moment. That's, it's very, it's very simply expressed like that, isn't it? That's it. And the teaching that I think communicates that most directly is one that I give a lot, which is that teaching of the two arrows. I think that expresses the most quickly this core teaching. And that's that teaching that the Buddha says we're all shot, as it were, by an arrow, which is that sometimes we have physical pain or emotional pain or interpersonal pain, sense of injustice, whatever. And everyone is shot by that arrow at times. What differentiates a non-practitioner from a practitioner is that a non-practitioner will tend to react to that first arrow and, as it were, shoot a second arrow as if that would help. So I react to physical pain by tensing or whatever, or by some other reaction, you know, and that's extremely common. Again, I often cite the way that doctors say that uh, among patients with chronic pain, 80% or more of their pain is not the original stimulation, but it's the reaction. And we can see that interpersonally as well, very easily, or emotionally, right? We can see how something difficult happens and I react and something might happen I might have a 10-second interaction with someone in my family and I might react to that 10-second interaction for the next three days, right? That, that would be high degree of difficulty, <laughs> okay? But, um, and that's the second arrow. In other words, I tend to shoot the second arrow a lot. So it can happen interpersonally with our emotions. It can happen socially. People shooting the second arrow uh, make for wars, make for conflict. And typically, you look at the heart of them, heart of conflict, it's something like, I receive pain and I'm inflicting pain back. Look at the Middle East right now. What is it about? Mm-hmm. Tremendous pain on one side, we will inflict pain on the other, and there's a cycle, right? So you can see that the Um, actually what's called for is what I'm calling responsiveness. That ability to um, work with one's reactivity and conditioning, which is a lot, and be able increasingly to respond. And I'll get in a moment to how we do that at the level of thoughts and emotions, which is really where we train. But the guidance of the Buddha in that story was to say that the the non-practitioner tends to shoot the second arrow, which causes all sorts of suffering, leads to all sorts of suffering. The practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. In other words, learns to be responsive. Doesn't mean it's easy. I have physical pain. Can I 
um, be with it? Can I learn how to be with it? Part of meditation training and mindfulness training is to learn to be at times with unpleasant sensations in the body and watch the tendencies to be reactive and develop that capacity more when it's wise. A big part of our training is to be able to be with unpleasant emotions or thoughts and be mindful of them without immediately reacting. That's the training. We learn how to do that. And then we bring it out into our lives, into interpersonal situations and so forth. And we can do that also socially. I like to interpret the nonviolence of Gandhi and King as an exact parallel for the teaching of the two arrows. It is, we have received pain, we will not pass on the pain. We refuse to continue cycles of oppression and violence. We will break those cycles by awareness and love. So this is our, it's a very, when you look at it that way, this is very simple, isn't it? Simple in principle, but hard in practice. But it's, it's great that it's simple. If it was really complicated, theoretically, it'd be rougher. And, the, and you can go in the bookstore and read all sorts of complicated theories about all this, right? You can go into great details about the theories of the emptiness of the self, right? You can read about the 20 different kinds of emptiness. Did you know there were 20 different kinds? And that was probably just scratching the surface, (laughs) right? But this simple teaching of being responsive is enough. It's right at the center, and I think it's the direct, simple, down-to-earth way to talk about the core teachings that we're receiving here. Very, very simple. Very, very simple. So I think I've, you know, through clarifying some of the two arrows, you can see that the core principle is the same whether we're looking at inner experience or our experience with others. And it's also the same whether we're looking at um, first-person experience or what's happening in society. This quality of responsiveness is so deeply needed and it's right at the core of um, dealing with suffering, peace, freedom, and so forth. Okay, ready to devote your life to being responsive for the rest of our lives? Okay, raise your hand. Well, we'll the sign-up sheet. Okay, okay, very good. So, um, maybe, maybe just one other word. Um, another way of talking about this, really, which is a starting point, is that we start by taking radical responsibility for our own minds. That ability to be responsive is, first of all, ability to be responsive with our own experience. Again, so we start with easier experiences, we cultivate mindfulness and so forth, and then we become able to bring out that quality of responsiveness to challenging situations, to more difficult situations. That's part of, that's part of the training. But it really is ultimately a stance where we look at our experience and we say, I'm angry because this person did this, right? And we question that. And we say, I take responsibility for my own anger, right? And we learn, I think, when we look carefully, that actually other people don't cause our emotions. Do you know that? Our language makes it seem like other people cause our inner experience. And people can, other people can certainly trigger our experience. But when we, when we have cultivated responsiveness, other people can do all sorts of things. And I might have, let's say, anger triggered for a moment. But, if I stay ang- but ultimately, I have responsibility for whether I stay angry. So that difference between triggering and causing is quite important. So we take radical responsibility for our own experience, even for what happens with challenging situations. That doesn't mean we don't respond and we have to, you know, if someone does something that requires us saying, no, don't do that, unacceptable, that's part of skillful response. But that's 
a different issue than taking responsibility for our own minds and hearts. Do you get that? Does that, does that make some sense? And we can actually be incredibly skillful. I, I heard um, a wonderful tool for um, doing that, uh, I think about 10 days ago. Um, I was listening to a talk by uh, Carolyn Casey. Does anyone know her work? <laughs> wonderful speaker. I think lives in Washington, D.C. And she talked about what she called a harumphitude composter, <laughs> which is um, very important. And it's related to this principle of taking responsibility for one's own experience. A harumphitude composter it, um, is a tool that one uses when a situation comes up that might uh, lead one to say harumph. In other words, situations, OK, that person, uh, that driver just cut me off. Harumph. <laughs> and in other words, the kind of situations where typically we would go into reactivity, right? That person just cut me off. Harumph. How dare that person? I should go back to driver N, you know, or whatever. Or that person said this. How could that person say that? And we go into reactivity. Or the Supreme Court just said that. Not only are corporations people, but they have beliefs, religious beliefs. Imagine that. <laughs> right? And we go harumph. Right? Or, you know, or whatever, whatever happens. You know, and we would say, and what, what one does with a harumphitude composter <laughs> is one notices the harumph, but then you compost it and you come back immediately. This is kind of like her perspective, which is kind of like uh, brings in what would be called from like indigenous traditions, uh, trickster energy, <laughs> you know, where you bring in the trickster energy, which is very resilient. You know, it's like I actually brought in one of my favorite trickster books, but I think I'm not going to have time to read it. Maybe next time called The Raven Steals the Light, which is from the um, Haida Gwaii people from up in uh, uh, what's sometimes called Queen Charlotte Islands up British Columbia. And the raven is a trickster figure. It's very, very resilient. So um, what the um, what one does with the harumphitude composter is you notice your harumph and you release it by, um, by doing, uh, taking actions if they're necessary to prevent harm. But then you maybe uh, offer a blessing and remember your core principle of responsiveness and you offer a blessing. Like uh, actually just yesterday I heard one of my friends had her um, a cell phone stolen from her car. And I told her about the harumphitude composter and offered her an email where it said, may, may the thieves be influenced by all the dharma that is on your cell phone and, 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 and come to realize that stealing is not a good thing and be turned into being responsive and counseling people who would otherwise be thieves. May that happen. <laughs> you know, so you get the shift of internal energy, right? And so, anyway, that's, that's a very skillful way of, I think, of working with, um, with reactivity. You know? So we need all sorts of tools for reactivity, right? So, um, practicing with thoughts and emotions is a, one of our fundamental ways of training. And I'll say a little bit now, mostly talk about mindfulness, and then, um, and then next time talk about some further ways. So. Um, one way that I think of practicing with thoughts and emotions, which is, again, going to be our ground-level practice for being with challenges, is, again, taking responsibility in the sense of the ability to be responsive for our own minds, hearts, bodies, right? That's right at the center of this. And it's not easy because we have long, uh, for many years, developed neural pathways of reactivity. But again, recent brain research says neuroplasticity is real. Neuroplasticity means that a 50-year-old habit can be reversed surprisingly quickly. <coughs> Amazing, right? And we've maybe seen that in meditation. I've seen that with so many people I work with. Very long-standing patterns. We should remember that culturally as well. Long-standing patterns can be reversed sometimes very quickly. Okay. I have to remember that. <laughs> okay. And so um, three ways of uh, practicing 
with uh, thoughts and emotions, three basic ways. This is our own internal practice, not so much interpersonally, but in our own uh, mindfulness practice. The first is simply, uh, um, no, first is not simple. The (laughs) The first is noticing if we're in balance relatively or out of balance and having a whole set of ways to come back to balance, number one because we can't be mindful and we can't practice when we're out of balance. So we have to have a lot of ways to come back to balance. We need to know that we're out of balance. I'll say more about each of these. The second is practicing mindfulness. And the third is more actively working skillfully with thoughts and emotions, particularly persistent ones. So that's my, those are my three broad areas for practicing with thoughts and emotions. So I'll I'll say some, especially about the first two, and then maybe take more on the third next time. Okay, and I'll, I'll be brief here so we can, can um, have our discussion time. I almost always bring in enough material for about a two-hour talk. So I have to be, I have to be disciplined to, to avoid receiving possible reactivity. From, <laughs> you said you were going to give a short talk. You said, ah! <laughs> okay, but you could... Use your harumphitude composter if that occurs. Okay. Okay. So um, the first is really crucial, particularly with really challenging thoughts and emotions, ones that are on the degree of difficulty scale up near 9 or 10. They often will throw us out of balance, will be reactive. Our bodies can be affected. You know, really difficult interactions with another person can actually shift our nervous system. We can be flooded. You know, we have, you know, all the um, hormones are really t- actually taking us out of our right mind. We need to have a, a whole set of ways of working with, with uh, those kind of challenging situations. So uh, the first is to, be, to take as a um, uh, part of one's training the asking the question, am I in balance or not? A lot of times we may, even in our meditation, we may think I'm sitting here being mindfully balanced and actually be totally under the command of a, of a habit. So we have to really ask that question, am I balanced now or not? And I find it's not an easy question always to answer. I find people in retreats don't always know that answer. Sometimes we're just locked in reactive patterns and think, oh, I'm kind of aware it's there, therefore I'm mindful. I don't think that really works that so well that way. It's really, so what's happening? Am I predominantly being carried away by these thoughts and emotions? And then, uh, if I'm not, I can try to be mindful and use other practices. If I am being carried away, um, I need to try to come back to balance. Because being carried away by reactive patterns is not helpful for anyone. And it's not mindfulness. And, and again, there's, uh, I know that it's sometimes hard to know. You know. So we have to ask that question. And then if we do find ourselves out of balance, what do we do? I think each of us probably have a little repertoire. What do you do when you're out of balance? You know, if I would ask you right now and you would give like a one word or two words for what you do when you're out of balance, what would you say? Nature. Yeah, be in nature. Sometimes be with what can stabilize. Sometimes stabilize the mind, the heart, even sometimes the nervous system, right? So very, what's another one? Breathe. Breathe. Sometimes just to have the, uh, uh, work on the, on the level of the body. Breathe, maybe move. I found that uh, uh, I used to, uh, for some time I was, as most of you know, I was connected with a graduate school. And we'd have once a month, we'd have all-day meetings, which were challenging at times. And I would always uh, go swimming right after the meetings. Where they were like six or eight-hour meetings. I would go swimming. And before the swimming, I could feel it. It was in my body. And after the swimming, a lot of it was released. So something physical, breathe, and so forth. What else? Be quiet. Yeah, be quiet. Sometimes just have some solitude. Again, sometimes being with beauty can help. What else? Yeah. Well, I find that I have to. Just a one, 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 one word. Yeah, That's okay. We, we can come back in the discussion if there's a question. I'm looking for just the one word now. Slow down, okay? Cleaning. Cleaning. 
Okay. Now, a lot of these are personal, cleaning. <laughs> Have fun. Yeah. Music. Be with beauty is great. Some beauty of music, art, nature. Yeah. Water. Bath. Yeah, bath. Something that calms the system, right? Can be very, very. Because a lot of this affects our nervous system, right? So that's. And, you know, we might also do, use meditative tools. For some people, if the loving-kindness practice is quite strong, it can be invoked. You know, I often talk about if your loving-kindness practice is strong and you wake up in the middle of the night and start judging yourself or, you know, anxious about something, loving-kindness practice is great. And I've sometimes talked about my own experiences with loving-kindness. I've told the bear story, right? Mm-hmm. Remember that? Oh, maybe I'll tell that another time. But... Um, just the short version is loving kindness in the middle of the night camping where there had been a recent uh, bear rampage but the bear had been removed I was told three hours of metta calmed my mind (laughs) and the bear never appeared so so, um, okay so some other we might also some of the other obvious ones we might talk with a friend right talk with someone who can really help us gain perspective. Sometimes listen to a Dharma talk, just gain some perspective. A lot of us just take time out, right? All these journaling, writing, come to Spirit Rock, shift the energy, be in the presence of someone who's balanced, right? All these are helpful. And it's really helpful maybe to, you know, write around your wrist my five tools for coming back to balance. And having that's really, really uh, crucial. Some of the others I had written down that we didn't mention. Humor is sometimes helpful. Spa- having a sense of spaciousness uh, and so forth. You know, having, coming up with wisdom, pra- uh, wisdom perspectives. Okay, so that's really crucial. That's the first important aspect of working with thoughts and emotions, particularly challenging ones, is have a set of ways that you come back to balance. Then if you're reasonably in balance, how to be, how to be mindful. Um, and being mindful means really being with the thoughts and emotions more directly. Being able to be present with them and uh, feel them in the, in the body, feel, you know, be with thoughts, notice them, track them. And I, I think of uh, uh, three basic forms of mindfulness, and it's useful to think about them because sometimes... We can't do all of them, but we can do one of them. The first aspect of mindfulness is simply noting what's there. Really notice, noticing what's present. Sometimes it's very helpful to, you know, we're, in the, we're getting carried away by something and just to say, there's anger here. What it does is it actually breaks the monopoly of the automatically angry mind, which is very significant. So just noting. It may not feel like much. Oh. I'm just going to note I'm angry. Everyone knows I'm angry. So what? What's it going to do? But it can do a lot. And a second aspect would be um, being with what's happening and exploring it, investigating it, being with the anger. Oh, let me just stay with the anger. Let me be present with it when it's there, or the joy. Let me just feel what this is like in the body and in the mind. And the third, the third aspect of mindfulness is starting to notice patterns. This sort of brings, starts to bring in the wisdom dimension. We start, maybe, maybe we see, oh, what, was, what actually triggered me with my friend? Oh, I think this, she said this, and I went there. And then we start to see patterns, and we start to maybe collect a lot of accounts, and we start to see, oh, there seems to be a pattern here that when someone makes an assumption about me that's incorrect, I get quite irritated, right? Oh, let me look at that. And this is working sometimes with some of our, our deeper patterns. Many of, many of us know the very helpful acronym for working with mindfulness. That's called RAIN, R-A-I-N, which is recognizing, accepting, investigating, and not identifying. I'll just briefly say those, and then, then we'll open things up. And so th- these are, this is really part of our, as it were, um, guidance for, for next time, for, be, for working with mindfulness with thoughts and emotions. And we can do this with challenging ones as well, very much. 
So first is just recognize, which is an aspect of that noting. Just to know that it's here, be clear what's present, R. The A is acceptance, which could translate into non-resistance. I'm angry. I don't want to be angry. I am angry. And acceptance here means that it's really happening, and it doesn't mean that it should be happening or it's good for it to happen in the future. It just means it's happening right now. That's what acceptance means. And we have to be careful about that because acceptance in English is often ambiguous. Sometimes when we talk about accepting something, we mean, okay, yeah, that should just continue, or it's okay for it to continue. Sometimes we can accept that something's there, and our responsiveness tries to take steps to avoid it happening in the same way next time. Right? So that's, that could be part of responsiveness. So acceptance means non-resistance and meditation, being willing to be with what's there. I wish I wasn't angry, but I am. Let me just be with it. Let me study it. Let me explore it. The I is investigation, which means being present, investigating, really looking. Okay, what's this like? What form does joy take? What's joy like? What's irritation like? It's like studying our own experience, sometimes for the first time. Do we have enough, do we really look at something uh, with depth? And then the non-identification, the N, means can I look at this almost as if I was a scientist, a naturalist? Oh, look at this heat developing in my body. Oh, look at the very negative thoughts occurring about my friend. Oh, interesting. Having, having uh, that, that attitude, let me just see what's here, not to take it personally and, and work with it in that way. And we, you know, we start to practice with um, thoughts and emotions which are maybe not so challenging, and then we gradually bring that out into challenging situations using the same tools. So maybe to summarize, I'll end with a poem. And this is really about going deeply into our experience and developing the capacity for responsiveness. That's it. That is the core of our practice. That we have to be really simple. It's really being willing to open to everything and learn to be responsive. So this is from Rilke. He says, God speaks to each of us as he makes us then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame. Make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. Give me your hand. So our practice is both very simple and very challenging, right? Can I be responsive? That's it. In the responsiveness, there's um, a kind of freedom. Can I have more and more freedom moment to moment with more and more of a range of my experience? That's it. So reflections, questions, yeah, please. And let's, let's say our names and I'll, I'll repeat. You know, it'd be great to use the microphone. Can we do that? Why don't you say yours now? We'll use the mic for the second. one to needed action 
or um, to uh, protect oneself. Mm -hmm. And then, and I wonder what, wh how you can respond to that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a um, question, if I'm, and correct me if I don't quite get it, but it's a, it's a question about how, particularly the starting point was noticing that for a number of women, it's very hard to respond, let's say, skillfully. Um, and, and in particular, it's maybe hard to express anger. Well, when you, let's stay with the microphone. When anger comes to them from their yeah. family, from yeah. others, it's, they get stuck. And they then there's a feeling of uh, not being heard, not being seen, because the anger is taking over so much that's directed toward them. Yeah. And, how are, and it, they can recognize it's a pattern, but how, is there a positive aspect to anger in terms of to incite one to action mm -hmm. or to protect? So the question about is there a positive aspect to anger? So in terms of what I was saying, I would say that would be degree of difficulty, probably 9 or 10. It's a hard situation. It has all sorts of cultural aspects as well and social aspects. And um, yeah, it gets into some, um, yeah, some important but somewhat complicated issues about the nature of anger, um, which um, are very important to me and I've you know, written, on, written on them some. Um, so I, I could give a two-hour response to what you said, and I'd be interested in that, but I, I want to, for the sake of time, give a brief response. Uh, yeah, it's really important. There's a tremendous amount of social and cultural conditioning and confusion about anger, actually for everyone, not just for women, but it's especially a strong issue because, of course, uh, there's a strong conditioning for women to not be angry, to be accommodating and so forth. That's at least a few millennia old. So it's quite quite strong. And you know, and there's there there's a certain amount of research, I think it's well well founded, connecting the lack of access to anger among women with depression. I think that that's fairly well established. So so you see it's a, it's a lot of complexities here. Um, and add that to the fact that there's a lot of confusion about anger uh, among Western Buddhists because a lot of the translations aren't very good and the cultural connotations are very different in Asia and the West around anger. So generally, so I, again, I could give a very long response there. The short response would be that I think that accessing the energy of anger is often quite important. The real key is then what you do with it. Can I be responsive with my anger rather than reactive? The reactive, being reactive with anger will tend to lead to suffering. Being responsive, first you have to access it, right? And for a lot of people it's hard to access. So some of the mindfulness tools that I just gave would be helpful to access anger in a protected environment first and then learn how to bring it out into the world. So, so a lot of what we do here, as well as a lot of other tools, can be very helpful in that way, you know, for women, but also for, for men. I think, you know, personally, I was raised to not have very good access to anger. Um, and, yeah, so there's a lot there, but I hope that's sufficient for now. Yeah. If we could, if, if you could spend, oh, if you could spend some time, a session on that, I... It, I would appreciate it. I don't know if anyone else would. <laughs> Thank you. Would anyone else? Okay. I, yes, uh, it, it's very interesting for me. Please. Or maybe I could give, uh, maybe not a whole session, but maybe I could bring it in next time in more depth. Yeah. Hi, I'm Hi. Margaret, and I just wanted to uh, say I'm a very new practitioner of uh, these... Um, systems of yeah. mindfulness and such. However, um, I have made a commitment to uh, really work on yeah. my mindfulness and meditation and skillful communication. 
And I wanted to share that um, <clears throat> although I am so new, uh, it is like a little baby getting up and trying to walk and stumbling and falling, and I'm noticing that an awful lot. But I had an incident this past week in which I had a, a call that came in mm. from what they said was Microsoft and th telling me that my computer was being hacked. And it turned out that they wanted to sell me something. And in the process of being manipulated, they took over my computer, which I allowed them to do. And I found myself getting very angry mm. at the person I was speaking to because mm. I felt I was being lied to. And uh, I was scared mm. because they took over my computer. Yeah. And so I reacted very angrily. I, yeah. I just screamed at him and said, you can't do this. And he started to yell it back at me. Hmm. And what I noticed was that as soon as I realized how angry my response had been, and his response coming back at me that was so inappropriate, I got so calm, <laughs> and I became so reasonable, and I just took care of it. You know, mm -hmm. I pretty much disconnected, but in a way that I knew I had protected myself. Mm -hmm. And what it occurred to me was that in noticing that reaction that I had, which always comes up to me as always a surprise to me yeah. when I get that angry. And um, it, so it is an old pattern. But what helped was the awareness. Yeah. The awareness that I was angry, what I had done, and it came almost in split-second timing. Yeah. So, Be beautiful. Thank beautiful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Margaret. Really, I mean, our practice works like that, right? We put in a certain amount of time in a difficult situation Maybe not immediately, but at some point there might be, oh, I'm angry, and it changes everything, right? So this is a fruit of, it sounds like it's a fruit of our practice. Again, and, and also remember that's a, that's a fairly high degree of difficulty situation, right? Uh, tel uh, responding to telemarketers is generally advanced practice. <laughs> some of you, I don't know, some of you may want to make that your core... Uh, practice for the next week is how do you respond to telemarketers? And how many people get at least three or four calls a week? Oh, a day. Okay, a day. Okay. Yeah, it was. I had a very. Um, who was it? Uh, yeah, someone was telling me she had a very difficult interaction with a telemarketer, but then she tried to make it more personal, and and tried to be empathic, and the telemarketer kind of opened up. <laughs> and said, you can't believe what it's like to get hung up on all day long. <laughs> and they had this very empathic conversation, you know, and uh, quite something. Okay, others, please. But that could be a practice for some of us. Or, uh, let me, let's put it this way. When you get a telemarketing call, say, opportunity for advanced practice. <laughs> Please. Uh. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, even if you don't react, say say that somebody, a uh, friend or somebody, makes you angry or hurts you because uh, they're connected, and maybe you don't react because you're aware of what yeah. what's happening. You know, you still, you can't get rid of that hurt. You know, I mean, if this, I, I don't know if this, what the second arrow is, but, but it, if it's, if it's sort of lashing out at the other person, you can prevent that. But, but I, I have a hard time with my emotions and just, you know, not being able to, those don't go away. You know, you can, you can work with your mind and you can work with your thoughts, but, Boy, I can't. I have not found a way yet to work with my emotions and being able to stop a negative, uh, well, a, a, an emotion that feels bad that can go on for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. So great question, thanks, Debbie. Um, and how to maybe how to understand that kind of situation in terms of the two arrows? I think it is helpful to distinguish. Uh, you know, there can be some difficult emotions which occur in an interaction. I think it's. Um, what would be helpful to prevent shooting the second arrow in that situation? And this is where we can talk about what would, what would being responsive means or responsible for that situation. Some of it would be to um, not feed certain negative stories about the situation. 
not consciously and actively feed them. And that's something we can do with our practice. There could be a tendency to go into a certain narrative, maybe a negative narrative about the other person. Even the language one uses, one has to be careful. Like you use the language, someone made me angry. Right? And we have to, that in itself is actually not a, uh, that's an interpretation. You know, which is an interpretation about causality, as I was saying, part of what this practice is about is taking radical responsibility for one's own experience. Now, I know you were just, we use that as a everyday descriptive kind of language, but actually it's, it has a storyline there. And we could be careful about that and see, am I telling stories about what this person did? And am I repeating them over and over again? Because that tends to happen. And can I more radically just be with the sense of pain or the difficult emotion. Watch carefully for any proliferation of stories, narratives. That's one thing one can do. And one can also sometimes respond skillfully, you know, oh, this was really painful for me. What will help me not to shoot the second arrow? And maybe it might be to do something soothing or to really like, oh, let me just take care of myself, or all the things, some of the things we mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, and and to, to uh, look carefully, it really is a study of what, what, what is reactivity. Because what we're looking to do is as much as we can not to consciously uh, support reactivity. So we can just be with the emotion. Let me just feel what it's like in the body. Typically, if we do that with mindfulness, we'll notice tendencies to be reactive. You know, like, oh, why did that happen? Or, or reacting in the body, or telling a story, or I don't like this, oh, I was having such a good day before this. <laughs> Whatever it might be, you know. And so it's really to watch that, not to feed them. That's the big part, not to feed reactive tendencies. To that, we have to be mindful of them. And it still can be painful. Another very helpful tool is actually in being mindful, something I haven't, didn't talk about today, but sometimes I've talked about, is if we can actually be with the difficult emotion and stay with it, often there might be something beneath, beneath it if we stay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, emotions are often covers, mm-hmm. or there can be covers for other emotions, generally point to how something that we wanted didn't happen or something that is important to us uh, didn't happen and so forth. And actually to be in touch with that, oh, um, you know, I'm really angry about that interaction. And then when we stay with the anger, maybe, oh, I'm sad. I really want better communication with this person. I really value that. And it's not happening not happening now. And sometimes when we get in touch with that sadness and what I really want, it can shift things. We can actually shift things and I can be a little more proactive and actually, again, it's a little bit like that harumphitude composter. I get, get in touch with the positive energies that are connected with my pain, which is quite important. You know, I can say, oh, this was happening. I really want uh, better communication. I'm really sad that it didn't happen because the sadness is probably going to be beneath the anger in that kind of context. And when I get in touch with that, I can actually, you know, and then I hang out with the sadness and get in and have a sense of what the important value is for me. And then, it, it, and then I hang out with that value. It can shift the energy. And also helps me actually be uh, maybe more skillful in what I say. So I don't so much criticize the person, but you know, again, it's going to depend totally on the nature of the relationship. But in some relationships, I might start by saying, you know, I got really angry after our last interaction. And when I stayed with it, I realized I was very sad because I'd really love to have better communication with you. And I'm wondering if we, you'd be willing to work on this together. Right? Something like that could be a very skillful response where I don't get locked in the um, anger. And again, that's going to be depend on a relationship that can support that, and a lot of them, a lot of relationships can't. But, uh, yeah, so, so, so we'll continue, okay? So the uh, invitation is to take on, maybe let's take, have a few moments to, how many of you would like to focus 
on being more responsive for the next week. <laughs> How many of you would like to do the opposite training? <laughs> okay. So, um, and how many of you would like to consciously, you know, focus on practicing with thoughts and emotions and generally seeing where you get reactive and then come back next week? Okay. Okay. Um, so set your intention just for yourself right now. Maybe even thinking of some situations you'll bring this into and maybe just the practice, you know, the mindfulness practice as well. And in closing, I think we can see that this practice really is both for ourselves, but also very much for others, very much for others and for the world. And we, um, and with dedication and merit, we offer the fruits of our time together uh, for the benefit of all. Thank you. To be continued. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.